Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Tara Nuren, who is the author of A Woman's Places in the Brew House, a forgotten history of alewives, brewsters, witches, and CEOs. Tara, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start by talking a little bit about why you decided to write this book, how it came about? Sure. Um, You know, it's funny. I've been a professional journalist for about 25 years now, and I never set out to write the great American novel. You know, it wasn't really part of my um, landscape until I was on the phone with my women in beer mentor, Terry Farendorf, who founded the Pink Boot Society, which is an organized, an international nonprofit for women in the alcoholic beverage industry. And um, as she likes to say, she's very fond of volunteering people what to do. And I'm so glad she did because as I said, we were on the phone, it was 2015 or 2016. And she said, you know what, Tara, no one's written a history, a book about the history of women in beer before, and you need to write it. You're the one. And, you know, Terry has this amazing propensity to see potential in people that they don't see in themselves. And she had given me some ideas prior to that, grand ideas that I thought, that's a fabulous idea. I could never do that. But when she said, you know, you should write this book, I thought, oh, well, I think I could actually do that. Lots of people write books who aren't writers. And lo and behold, I'm a professional writer. I am the one to write this book because I'd been covering women in beer um, for, you know, five to 10 years before that. So it made sense. So can you, before we get into sort of some of the things in the book, can you talk a little bit about how you structured it? Because you have these sort of short chapters and move back and forth between what's happening today and kind of the history. So could you talk about that structure a little bit? Sure. So what I did was every, I alternated chapters between basically like distant history and recent history leading to contemporary times. So for instance, you know, the book starts in 1976, but then the next chapter, chapter two, we jump back to like biblical times. And then we jump forward to the 1980s. And then we jump back to, you know, Babylonia, um, Babylon. So um, the whole book proceeds that way. Um, I suggested it to my editor and she said, all right, well, let's try it and see how it works. If it doesn't work, we won't do it that way. And I'm so glad she thought it worked because I think it's a cool way to break up the story and show parallels. So let's sort of start maybe with kind of that ancient history. So could you maybe share a little bit when we think about the history of beer, and we think about the history of brewing, kind of where you see and sort of situate the history of women in the, those spaces? Sure. So what most people don't know is that it is strongly believed um, that women really have been history's brewers, starting from hunter-gatherer times. Because if you think about the fact that in all likelihood, men have been the ones to go out hunting and women have been the ones to tend to the children, tend to the fire, tend to the village, make the food. 
um, you know, beer is something that one drinks. So that would be part of kitchen work. Now, people listening might be scratching their heads and wondering, well, how is that if we just, you know, drink beer at football games or something? Well, beer throughout most of human history has actually been the staple beverage for families as a primary nutrient source. Um, throughout most of history, there really wasn't a lot to drink. I mean, we weren't drinking milk, we weren't drinking juice, we weren't drinking soda. Um, wine very often tended to be expensive. Um, and uh, water in most times and places either wasn't particularly safe to drink or wasn't believed to be particularly safe to drink. So really kind of by default, um, you know, as recently as colonial American times, um, you know, everybody in the family, starting with babies, would drink low alcohol beer and cider as, you know, their breakfast, lunch and dinner staple. So you we have this. So there's this interesting piece, right? You kind of look at some of these histories that people have forgotten or, or things that people have not known about beer. Right. Um, and you also look at kind of, and beer, it's not only just that you focus a bit on the United States, especially when we look at modern history, but a larger global history of beer and the history of beer, um, as you look at those historical spaces. And so can you talk about maybe some of those choices that you made to what you brought in, right. Um, in looking at the sort of the the space of beer in the world. Yeah, sure. So there were are some times and places that obviously needed to be in the book. Um ancient Egypt, um ancient Mesopotamia, um medieval England, um craft beer in the United States. Um, so those those were obvious. Um, but I really wanted to make sure to represent parts of the world where beer has also been, you know, a popular or staple beverage um, that we don't think about so much. Um, you know, I talk about ancient and contemporary brewing in Africa, for instance. I talk about um, the Mayans in South America. I talk about China, where um, the earliest discovery of alcohol is. Not beer necessarily, but alcohol was, um, you know, our, 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 our earliest evidence of it is in a place called Jiahu, China. So um, I didn't want this to be a book about American beer because that's just a small part of the story, right? Um, I wanted to try to show what women are doing and have been doing throughout time and space. And if I may just sort of answer a question that I don't think you've asked yet, <laughs> um, but sort of goes to your last question too, it's absolutely a astonishing how consistently the story repeats itself, whether we are talking about, you know, ancient Sumer, or we are talking about colonial America, or we are talking about Iron Age Scandinavia, the same thing happens over and over. And that is this, that we've got these women who are brewing for the family. In most places, they are also then selling some of their surplus to help sustain themselves, help sustain the family. And regardless of what the specific cause is, every single one of those times, 
men come in and take it over. And I lump those factors into three categories, which very often overlap. Um, Politics, capitalism, or economics, and religion. So um, in come the men, out go the women. And here we are in the United States thinking beer is a man's drink. It's really not. Right. And it's super, for me, it was really fascinating because we, you have kind of um, the stories or those, those histories that we are often told about the ale wives, right? The brew houses, all of that. But then these kind of hidden histories and some, um, I love all the stories of the nuns. Yeah, <laughs> and like, right, right. Cause you talk about, right. And, and the role of these women who are also kind of passing down tradition um, in ways that we don't think about either. And again, like we think about it as men's work, but women who have passed down a tradition who share this, like this is a tradition that it's really important to them um, and really important to their space and their culture. And we often forget about that as well. Absolutely. I mean, almost everybody knows about brewing monks, right? In Europe. Well, hello. Like, there have been brewing nuns for thousands of years, too. They just don't get the credit. And as you know from reading the book, that is um, one of the biggest themes in the book, which is that women their stories either don't get written down or they, they, they get forgotten and they, they've just been written out of the story. The entire narrative of beer leaves women out, nuns included. And so you do this. So we look at this history and there's some great things and we can come back to some of that, but you also then want to make sure that women are grounded throughout the craft beer industry and the brewing industry in the U S. So maybe we could start with kind of that craft beer industry and, and where we see and where women are essential to that and the start of that. So can you talk about some of those founding women in the craft industry? I love talking about them. They are really like, I just kind of swoon when I talk about those women you're asking about. So let's start and and I can go on forever. So please do cut me off. <laughs> no, they were like these... I have to say that as a, as a beer drinker, right. As a person who, when I go out, I'm like, I, I was just in Louisville and I just wanted to go to craft breweries. I didn't want it. I'm like, I don't want bourbon. I just want beer. (laughs) Um, and that's no bourbon for me. Um, I love, I was like, I want to have a beer with every single one of these women. (laughs) I'm reading it like they're great. So yeah, yeah. it's funny to me, like funny, not funny, how often people who are in the book will tell me they're not worthy of being in the book. And I'm like, are you really? Like the people I put in this book are some of the most impressive people I've ever spoken to in my life. And, and, you know, typical, they don't feel like they're worthy of being included. And um, I'm tangenting a little bit based on what you just said. But yeah, um, I mean, especially, not especially, but these craft beer women, as much as any others in the book, like had to create an industry that didn't exist and then do it while female too. So you asked about specifics. I like to start by talking about Suzanne Stern Dennison. Um, your beer drinking listeners might be familiar with the brewery, the old defunct brewery called New Albion. It was um, built in or opened in 1976 or started in 1976 in Sonoma, uh, California, at wine country. And um, 
people know the name Jack McAuliffe as the founder. And the reason New Albion is famous is that it was the first ground up craft brewery in America post-prohibition. So it really started all of this. And so, you know, Jack McAuliffe is famous as the founder in craft beer circles. Well, what I didn't even know until I started researching this book was that Two women funded the entire operation. One of them left pretty quickly, but the other one, Susie, was there from day one till the very last day. They ended up closing it six years later, so it wasn't around very often, but no one's ever heard of her, including people who are women in beer scholars. And so she's just this incredible woman um, who is in her 80s now, lives in Seattle, and... um, She's getting recognition now for like the first time since being in the book. And then like she's been discovered by two other historians right around the same time. So, for instance, she just um, got to go be the guest of honor at a Pink Boots collaboration brew in Seattle a couple months ago. And the leaders of the chapter were like, how do I find Susie? I've never heard of her before. She's been in our backyard this whole time. Um, So she's a great one. She's just like. I don't know. I just love talking to her. She's just got like such loving, calm energy. After she left beer, she became a yoga instructor for (laughs) decades. So um, another person who has been long ago forgotten was actually the very first woman to be a brewmaster and co-owner of a craft brewery in post-prohibition America. Her name is Melly Pullman. She co-founded Wasatch Ales in Utah. Um, Some people listening might have heard of of Polygamy Porter. (laughs) That's what they're famous for. Um, Well, So Wasatch still exists. It's gone on to buy several other breweries that are well-known and still exist. And it at least used to, I haven't checked recently, had a long history of the brewery on its website in a lot of detail, crediting the gentleman who co-founded the brewery. I mean, it was his idea. His name is Greg Scherf. I don't know if he wrote the history or somebody else did, but talked on and on and on about Greg. Melly's name was never mentioned. And, you know, to sort of close the circle a bit, I was at the Pink Boots Conference, actually, International Conference a couple months ago, and a woman came up to me. I was doing a book signing. She was all excited. She's like, I work at Squatters, which is one of the other breweries that Wasatch owns. She's like, the general manager there, or the pub manager, some manager there is a female. She read your book, and she is determined to get Melly's name put into that history. So I need to follow up and see if that's happened. But so those are two great examples of women who have never gotten any credit for their massive contributions to the beer world that we inhabit today. Right. And it's it's so incredible to and and not like it's kind of you're kind of like yeah that kind of makes sense right it's like in my mind I'm like why not and I'm like yeah it makes sense um and you talk about these other women so you're in Philadelphia you talk about Philadelphia in the book I was in I lived in Philly for a long time so Carol Stout's name is so important um to thinking about beer and thinking about brewing so could you talk maybe a little bit about her and um some of the people who are um 
more i don't know recent even yeah so so that second generation or that that second movement of women in brewing sure so like uh, uh, the carol stouts of the world okay so so i'll talk about carol and i'll also talk about another philadelphian um rosemary Serto. so carol stout um in the mid 80s was the first woman to own a brewery by herself. She was also the brewmaster. Um, she's back in the news. Um, and and she, Stouts has been, was around for decades. She just a couple years ago retired, closed the brewery. She couldn't really find a buyer for it, unfortunately. Um, but she had been making really excellent, mostly German style beers here in the Philadelphia countryside since the mid eighties. Um, news just broke a couple days ago that a Philadelphia brewery called evil genius is going to start, actually has already started making some of those stouts recipes again. So people in the Philly market will be able to drink, um, stouts again, which is fun. Um, cause people really miss Carol. I mean, she's been like, if you had a couple years ago asked anybody, like, can you name any woman in beer? They probably would have said Carol Stout. Um, A lesser known woman in beer from that generation, also here in Philly, also just making news again, is Rosemary Serto. Um, She opened Dock Street Brewing in Philadelphia in the 80s with her ex-husband. Her name was not listed. She was not listed as an owner because Rosemary and her ex-husband felt that it would be detrimental to their business if they listed a woman on the documents. Um, They got divorced a long time ago. Um, Some things happened with the brewery. And then back, uh, I'm going to say maybe 15 years ago, she brought it back. She opened a brew pub in West Philly, um, got famous for a couple things, including brewing a beer for... um, uh, what's that name? Walk that HBO show with she brewed a beer with goat brains for and called it Walker. Yes, walk. So right, I'm blanking now, but yes, that sounds right. So, um, and then she opened a second location here in Philly, and she just recently announced she's closing that original West Philly location, but opening one um in the Fishtown area, which you and I were just talking about, is like the beer hotspot in Philly. So, um, is that what you were asking? You wanted yeah, to know right those kind of people, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Right. So we because we have these women who so so women there are some women who people like know their names and hear about them, but we still have this huge history of women who are, you know, lost and forgotten. And then we have women today, even who are trying to break, either break into the business or are part of the, the brewing business who are not getting the recognition. So could you talk about some of the women who are doing some work now and today, um, sort of those up and comers who you're seeing out there? Oh, sure. Um, So many. I mean, it's so gratifying to see how many women I meet on a regular basis. Um, The first one who jumps to mind is a woman named Savannah, um, who was a brewer at Stone in Richmond. And she's recently gone on to brew. Oh, don't kill me. I didn't prepare for this question. Sorry, I should have. I don't remember the name of the brewery where she is now, but she makes fabulous beers. and um, she has read the book and I'm going to be doing an event with uh, 
the Pink Boots chapter in Richmond. Um, so Savannah in Richmond is a brewer to keep keep your eye on. Um, God, there's so many, I don't even know where to start. Um, I have an assistant, a remote assistant who's wonderful. Her name is Amanda Camp. She does events at this fabulous yeast-loving, yeast-experimenting, yeast-playing brewery called Ebb and Flow Fermentations in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Um, she is brewing, um, or just the other day, she brewed her second beer there in a, a goddess series that she's calling her goddess series. Um, you know, there that reminds me, there's um, a brewer um, named Libby Rother who studied in Germany was at Rheingeist, was leading the innovation program at Devil's Backbone in Virginia, and is now moving to Fort Collins, entertaining several offers. Um, and somehow she got away with naming her beers. And remember, Devil's Backbone is owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev. She was able to release some canned beers with these cheeky women's empowerment names with like equally cheeky labels for women's empowerment. And I was like, how did ABI let you do that? But she either slipped it under the radar or they thought it was great and have a sense of humor. So she's definitely a brewer to keep one, keep her eye on. She's going to pop up next in the Fort Collins area. And I'm so excited to see um, her trajectory. So those are just like three off the top of my head. And the one point I try to make in the book, as you know, is that when we talk about the beer industry, I know I just named three brewers. Well, Amanda also does events and a lot of things for me that aren't brewing. But, you know, we tend to think like, oh, somebody's role in the brewery is as a brewer. But there are so many jobs, like for anybody who's listening who might want to get involved in the beer industry. I talk about beer attorneys. I talk about beer marketers. I talk about my friend Ruth, who runs an international beer tour company. Um, so any interest that anybody has pretty much can be applied to some aspect of the beer industry, you know, finance, HR, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And I remember you talked about a one husband and wife who she runs the front of the house and, you know, he does the brewing and they, they right. Because they know like, and, and they talk about how it was really important to do the work together because if one of them was involved, but the other one wasn't, they would have no idea to the extent of the work that it takes to do this. Right. Um, so yeah, like I found that fascinating and you brought up this sort of the, the women, um, the sort of sneaking the names, the women's empowerment names into, right? So I think another thing that I really appreciate is that you look at the ways in which women are, were, and still are sort of silenced and sidelined in the brewery industry, right? So you talk about some of the ways that beer has sort of very sexist and misogynistic names in the craft industry and that. So could you talk a little bit about kind of some of those ways that you've seen women being pushed out by just how beer is labeled and approached and talked about. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and as you say, I talk about this in the book, like when, when craft beer was developing, I mean, it's gone through a lot of phases, right. But, and it's kind of, maybe most recent phase that I'll 
date back to like 10 to 15 years ago. 10 to 15 years ago, it was like, craft is the wonderful alternative to macro. Look, we don't use, we don't use like sexy bikini babes to sell our beer and this and that. And it was like the anti-macro, right? We were going to atone for all of macro's sins. And just to Define something real quick for your listeners. Um, macro beer is like your multinational corporations, Heineken, Budweiser, Miller, Coors, craft beer are small independent breweries that only get as big as Sam Adams and Yingling, which compared to the macros are minuscule. So now that our definitions are taken care of, um, but what we're finding at what we're what we're finally talking about finally in the past year or so is that that's kind of BS. I mean, maybe we're not as blatant about like sexy bikini babes in the craft industry, but there's been so much gatekeeping um, since the beginning. And you asked specifically about the labels and the cans. I will um, throw (laughs) a brewery local to me under the bus (laughs) because he he's got i don't need to name the brewery but he's got a beer and i've known i've known this guy we were in the in the same homebrew club before he even opened a brewery and he knows i talk about him like this and he refuses to change that's why i still talk about him like this he's got a beer that's called like thong remover or like panty remover or something like that i forgot the exact name and um people have called him out on it for years and he's like you know, well, my customers love it. And so sure, ha ha ha, chuckle panty remover beer, but, um, and he's far from alone. This kind of thing turns up over and over. And generally when somebody gets called out on it, they double down for a while. They're like, oh, have a sense of humor, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually they usually end up changing it because they get so much flack. But the thing is that sends a message that we're some dudes yucking it up in our garage. But what craft, what the craft industry needs to continue to realize is that it's not a fun hobby. It's a profession. You are selling a product to consumers. And so that message is this beer isn't for you. Like, I'm going to exploit some aspect of being female as a, you know, you might not consciously realize, you know, say to yourself, I'm doing it to keep women out, but it, it is telling women like, this is like locker room banter and we don't care enough about whether that offends you to consider your feelings in the way that we name our commercial product that's being sold. So, Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's really important because you talk about that kind of women's history around beer. You look at the temperance movement a bit, right? Women's role in that. And also, um, often it's looked at that, yes, women are drinking other things and women are not drinking beer. So why do we need to sort of sell for that audience? And I think your book is just one of hopefully the beginning of a start of a larger, right, conversation, like, a you know, a larger in print conversation of saving these histories and knowing that that is that is women women aren't women do drink beer and they have for a long time women do drink beer sorry i just want to 
um, agree with you, more and more and more women are drinking beer. And (laughs) here's what I think is super short-sighted. Beer is losing market share like crazy to spirits. And with 9,000 plus breweries in the country, it is harder and harder and harder for any individual brewery to succeed. So you can't keep dipping in the same well for customers. Breweries have to expand their customer base in order to survive. And so there are so many untapped markets right there that go beyond the stereotypical white dude you know, Gen X, uh, Gen X millennial drinker, right? You've got um, the Hispanic population, you've got other people of color, and you've got women who, some of whom love beer and some of whom would love craft beer if they were only sort of spoken to, addressed, welcomed, marketed to, et cetera, authentically. And you talk about, right, you address to that issue of um, there's women, you address the issue of women of color, of trans brewers and trans people in the beer industry, of queer people in the beer industry. And so, which I thought was really important as well, right? These, like, there are people out, people are out there. It's not just a bunch of, like, cis straight white guys, like you said, brewing beer. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Um, Maybe some of the things you think are really important around talking about that idea of expanding the beer industry and really looking at who everyone who's brewing and and in it. Absolutely. Um, It is believed that about 1% of craft breweries are owned by a a Black person. Um, The numbers of people working in the industry and owning breweries is growing. There's more attention being paid to um, some of these sort of less traditional beer populations as being people who love the industry, work in the industry, have major contributions in the industry. For instance, um, the uh, Barrel and Flow Festival in Pittsburgh is right around now. And that is one of two Black beer festivals that I know of. I'll be speaking at that. Um, There are some very big Facebook groups and organizations um, devoted to raising the profile and supporting women of color in the industry. And (laughs) let's go back to the beginning. You know, I'm talking about women really being the brewers throughout most of history. In all likelihood, and the reason I have to say it that way is because we don't have all that much evidence of ancient brewing, right? We just can take what we find and, and, you know, surmise things, piece things together. But humanity started in Southern Africa and people have been making alcoholic fermented beverages pretty much since the beginning of time. And so, you know... When I talk about hunter-gatherers, I'm talking about Africans, you know. Um, there were large civilizations in what is now called Ethiopia, large civilizations, as we know, in Egypt, with a big commercial brewing industries in ancient times, probably before we even realize, and there's some interesting scholarship coming out about that, 
and they were African. And nobody in this country really thinks about that aspect at all. And what's cool is that there are some craft breweries in Africa now, some um, with women as owners and brewers who are reaching back into those ancient female African brewing traditions and sort of bringing that story back to light using indigenous African ingredients. And a little bit of that is starting to trickle over to this country too. And, and some of the craft beers that are coming out. What an amazing like vacate, like or trip, right. To go to Africa and try craft brewing with women who have been taking traditional African brew. That'd be amazing. Um, (laughs) Can I just, can I, can I give a shout out to one of them in particular? Um, Rwanda's first craft brewery is owned by women, female brewer. Um, it's called Quaza and they are building a destiny. They're like desperately in need of money. (laughs) So any rich listeners who want to support, that would be a great thing to support, but they're building a destination brewery at the edge of a wildlife refuge in Rwanda. And that is my number one top African beer destination on my bucket list (laughs) (laughs) that sounds amazing (laughs) well and the other thing that you um kind of looked at and talked a little bit about is then how you see breweries and sort of the beer industry passing down through generations right and how there are some father-daughter breweries or some so could you talk a little bit about then how you see this history and um women being part of this history like a family history yeah sure so um in contemporary times there are a couple breweries owned and run as you're saying by father-daughter pairings there's one right near me in new jersey lower forge which is a mother and son which is awesome um, that's really kind of the only mother-son brewery I know of, or at least can think of off the top of my head. Um, but some of them have started as the fathers were home brewers and the daughters as they grew up, you know, became daddy's little helpers in home brewing. And then they've gone on to open these breweries together. Um, that's one that I talk about in the book, um, Yeah. To be honest, there really aren't very many, but I do love hearing about them. And I love, especially when like a male brewer I know will like bring his daughter, his little daughter to the brewery often. And, you know, if you think about it, there's so much that a kid can learn at a brewery, math, science, sales, marketing, packaging, um, manufacturing, um, You know, a lot of people bring their kids to tasting rooms, like on a Saturday afternoon, if they want to get together with friends. But I think it's a great idea as long as the parents supervise their children (laughs) the whole time they're there to like take them on a tour of the brewery and see if there's like little nuggets of of, uh, learning that can get passed down. Who knows? Like you might spark an interest in STEM and in some of the young girls young daughters and I love that idea that like often we think about STEM and it's very um 
traditional science based or math based spaces, but like breweries are like our STEM spaces as well, right? Like thinking about like the importance of like of that um, moving beyond just the those traditional. Well, you can be a scientist. We well, can also be a brewer, right? Yeah, you know, so- actually, sorry. Do you mind if <laughs> I throw in one more example? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so speaking of Carol Stout, um, when she did own the brewery, there were some of it was a family operation. Some of her kids were involved in like ancillary aspects of of their beer and food destination that they had outside of Philly, um, and um, Carol's former daughter in law, Jody, is a pioneer brewer I talk about in the book and Jody um, has a, a teenage daughter now. And she would, she grew up with her grandmother and mother being professional brewers. Um, I don't know what she wants to do when she grows up, um, but you know, she's, she's got absolute beer in her blood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and another thing you, you've mentioned pink boots a number of times. And so another thing that I think is important is the organizations and the support that is out there for women in the brewing industry. And so could you talk maybe a little bit about pink boots and some of the other kind of um, spaces that were trying to create those home places for women in the industry. Sure. Yeah. So, so Pink Boots um, was founded in 2007 as an organization for women in the brewing industry. It's since expanded to include women in all alcoholic beverages. And um, it has since expanded beyond that to allow sort of brewers and planning people, aspiring brewery professionals to join as well. Um, We've got conferences, a lot of scholarships, um, a lot of networking opportunities, uh, chapters around the world. Um, So that's your biggest organization. There's also an organization for women in cider called Palm Boots, P-O-M-M-E, which is Apple in French. Um, And then there are groups for female beer consumers. Um, I started the first one in New Jersey many years ago. It's, it's no longer an operation. Um, that was called beer for babes, um, which some people had an issue with the name, but most people liked it. Um, and, uh, there's still a national organization called girls pint out. Um, so if you're, a woman or female identifying, um, and you're interested in, you know, going to beer events with other like-minded women, um, Girls Pine Out is that organization. Plus a lot of cities have their own local, um, chapters. There's also a similar organization called Barley's Angels. Um, those are the two organized, the three organized organizations, um, but yeah, there are Facebook groups all over the place for women interested in beer. Um, that could be a good place to check out. Um, there are also organizations popping up that um, really address the Me Too movement in beer um, for women who are part of the industry or who have sort of suffered harassment even as a consumer at say a tasting room or something, um, those exist as well. The biggest one that comes to mind is called women of the Bevolution, And that's got, um, a lot of resources that they list for anybody who's, who's experienced some trauma 
in that regard. So, I mean, I could probably talk to you forever about <laughs> women in beer. And like I said, like, it just to reiterate for listeners, like you have, it's a long and extensive history that you go into. I mean, a lot of research into um, not only um, more modern history of women in the brew industry, but also very ancient kind of breweries. So, and I, the first comprehensive book about women in beer, right? Um, so, can you, I'll give you my last question is like mm-hmm. your shout out to like, you know, are you working on anything now or do you have anything coming up that you want to, you know, that last plug that you want to yeah. do? Thanks. Um, well, so one thing that I do want to plug um, is that I am a founder of a program called Transcending Trauma, which um, aims to get people female identifying people trained in transcendental meditation as a way to either heal survivor trauma and or um, create better workspaces. There have been more than 600 um, peer-reviewed studies that show the widespread benefits of transcendental meditation for all sorts of psychological and physical um I'll just call them ailments for lack of a better word. Um, And we are recruiting breweries and um, other alcoholic beverage companies to get some of their own employees trained and at the same time um, train a survivor of workplace harassment not within their own industry and thereby healing somebody who has been through trauma in the beer industry and bringing new resources um, to their own employees to create greater workspaces within their own company. So that, can I say the website? Mm -hmm. It's a little clunky, sorry, but it's hotforwardconsulting.com forward slash transcending trauma. If you just Google transcending trauma, hot forward consulting, it'll pop up. Um, So yeah, we're really actively recruiting all sorts of people for that, even individuals who might want to get trained in transcendental meditation as part of this project. So that is something I'm passionate about. We're just launching that. Um, As far as next books... um, We haven't decided 100%, so probably I shouldn't talk about it as much as I do, but here we go. I've already teased it. Um, Do you remember the beer Pete's Wicked Ale Mm -hmm. from the 90s? So did you drink it? Me too. I loved it. I drank it all through the 90s. Um, So Pete Slossberg is Pete. That was his brand. Um, He, After he sold Pete's, he founded a chocolate company and sold that. And he still makes chocolate. He travels throughout the world consulting um, in the beer and chocolate space. He and I are very likely, I don't, nobody steal this idea. (laughs) No one steal this idea. He and I are very likely going to co-write a beer and chocolate book together that looks at the combination of the two around the world. That's amazing. Because hey. that's a, th- and then throw in some cheese and then I think you're set. So. <laughs> Do you remember in Philly? Did you? Oh, you know what? It probably wasn't open when you by the time you left. But did you ever hear about a bar called Benelux in mm-hmm. Old City, Philadelphia? It was the greatest bar nobody ever heard of. Um, it was Belgian beer, cheese, and chocolate 
that was See? the bar. That's perfect. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yes. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> that Rest those things peace. need to come back. Anybody <laughs> listening, that's what you need back. <laughs> totally, man. <laughs> well, Taryn, it's been wonderful talking to you. Taryn Nuren is the author of A Woman's Place is in the Brew House. Thanks for joining me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure talking to you and your listeners.